Welcome to the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated to Magic Arena, Pioneer, and newer formats. I'm your host, Arjuna. Thanks for joining us for another week. I wanted to thank anyone returning from the previous episode that I released with Aaron Girdler. Thanks for coming back and, and checking out what's next. It's really nice to have people's involvement. And I wanted to give a shout out to anyone who responded to the R Spikes post that I made about that episode. And just in general, one of my favorite things about podcasting and from the previous shows I've done as well is just having involvement, getting feedback from people, hearing appreciation, people saying how something landed. If anything that I've made has made you happy or has given you an idea or something. It's just great to hear about that. So thanks so much to the people who have already been giving feedback. You know, I know that this show is young and we're just still on our first couple of episodes and it's always really nice to know that what I'm putting out is being received. So to that end, um, I have a Discord channel which I've set up and I would love to have you join it. Now, I know there's a million bajillion Discord channels out there, and so why mine? One nice thing about my channel is that it is not a pay-to-access Discord channel like many are, Discord server, I should say. So it's just free to anyone, and I have always enjoyed the accessibility of free Discord servers you know, I just want for it to be an open forum for anyone to come, discuss the show, discuss anything related to magic or really life in general. So you can find the link to that in the show notes. And this is also just a great way to get in on the ground floor of a community. If you've ever wanted to mod a Discord or if you've ever wanted to shape something as it's coming together, it's it's really a unique opportunity to do so. And so this is your chance to do that, get involved and to have your part in, in making something your own. Just to give you a little background, the previous podcast that I recorded was uh, devoted to Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. It was called Winner Winner. And that was a huge community success. We ended up having well over a thousand people in our Discord by the time I handed it over. And one of the things I loved about that show was that I would bring people on from the community to talk about PUBG. Those ended up being some of my favorite episodes and I definitely plan to do that again with this show. I just love, I love community. It's really what this is all about for me. It's what keeps me coming back to podcasting. So as an indication of the success of that, when I and, and my co-host eventually left that show, we handed it over to some community members who are still running it and they're having great success. And so that was just a huge payoff for me was to make something, build a community, hand the product over to the community and have the community continue it. So that's really what I'm trying to do here as well. Um, not the leaving part, but the creating the community part. Anyway, I've said enough on that front, but I would love to have you over in the Discord. So there's a link in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you there. So with that out of the way, let's move on to today's topic and our interview. This is someone who has been with Magic for a really long time. 
currently a writer for Channel Fireball, has been involved with Star City Games, also mods on the Spikes subreddit, and really an expert of the game who's been really focused on it for probably decades now. So, uh, so this is Josh Silvestri. Hello, Josh. Welcome. You're on the air. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's so awesome that you decided to join me. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. So I thought just to get us kicked off, I would love to hear a little bit more about your history with magic and the long path that it has taken. Tell us, when did you first start playing magic? So I first got introduced to magic by one of my friends when I was in high school. And uh, we had played it was like a mix of old cards from like ice age and the dark and stuff like that. Magic had been out longer than that, but that's what we had. And I guess what happened was he got it for his, like a Christmas gift. And obviously magic is something while you can enjoy it by yourself. It's much more fun being able to actually play decks against each other. And I was apparently one of the only people willing to like sit down and read through a rule book and try and figure out how the hell you play this game. And, um, so that was how I got started in it. And it was just a fun little thing. I would play at school with some people. We like met other people at high school that played and we'd play sometimes at lunch or whatever. And I didn't really get super into it uh, for a while until it was a game store is called neutral ground that opened over in mountain view. Uh, this is in the California Bay area. And so that was kind of like the place back in the day. And so I started playing for realsies in like the, I guess, end of the 90s, start of the 2000s, basically right after Urza's block had come out fully. That's when I started getting into it to give you an idea of like how long ago. So not quite beginning of magic, but like probably closer to the start of like when most people I found like, uh, People who started back in the day, usually they refer to something around that area, or they'd start yeah. like a year or two earlier to that. So, you know, it's funny because actually that was just after I got out of Magic for the first time. So I started playing in, I think I was in fourth grade, and uh, Fallen Empires had just been released at that time. And so that that was what was like, I remember buying my my packs of Fallen Empires and you know, my order of the Ebon hand and all that kind of stuff. And I actually, I stopped playing Magic right after Visions was released. Yeah, and so it's funny, actually, because I remember, you know, uh, checking in with a friend of mine a year or two later, and, and he was he had been playing Urza's block. And I remember looking at the cards and just being like, oh my God, like magic is so OP right now. And that, I mean, you know, that was just me in the moment, right? But anyway, I just thought that that was funny that it was like my for my first time with magic, I was kind of phasing out right before you were phasing in. Oh yeah, no, the timing is a little funny there. And I mean, also I get what you're saying though. It's like, to me, that was really because I started in one of the most powerful blocks everything seemed like, oh, okay, well, it's based more or less around this. I had no idea at the time or even for, like, years to come that that was, like, such uh, extreme compared to how Magic normally was played. That's kind of fun, though. So so what happened next for you then? I started doing some Magic writing because uh, I was involved in a bunch of Magic forms back then. Uh, 
it was, uh, I guess the mana drain was the main vintage one. And so I used to post on there and talk to people and, uh, magic traders online. Uh, I think M2, uh, MTOL was like the acronym. And back then it was like the big thing before there were like a lot of large online stores, a lot of online trading would go on through there. Mm, and okay. so, it was like this huge forum. And so they had an article section. So I do stuff for there. And just because I don't know, it just interested me. I liked writing stuff and like sharing opinions and stuff and getting feedback. And so it was just fun to do. And then, uh, star city games way back in the day had open submissions. And so I submitted an article and surprisingly it got through and it got posted. And then I was like, Hey, I actually enjoy this and I want to keep doing it. Oh, that's awesome. Do you remember what the article was, your first article published on there? Oh, God. It was, <laughs> other than being awful, it was probably something in, like, I want to say Onslaught Block, because back then Block Constructed was a PTQ format. So oh, I, there you go. I'm mm -hmm. guessing some around that time. So I was writing for Star City Games for, I don't know, three or four years, some around there. It was a while. And uh, what happened was... They brought in a bunch of new writers, and I asked for, like, a raise eventually. I think at the time I was getting paid, like, 30 bucks an article or something. And they were like, nah, you've hit the max for, like, a free side writer. Because they had not that long ago introduced, like, premium. And so those guys were obviously making a lot more. I don't know the specifics, but yeah. And so I was just like, oh, well, that kind of sucks. I mean, I still wanted to write to write, so I still kept doing it for a while. But uh, at the time, uh, Channel Fireball was like my local game store. And they, uh, Luis Scott Vargas, who you may have heard of, I don't know, he's, he's kind of a big deal. I think one, once or twice, maybe. <laughs> um, so he would come and he would play at the game center, but mostly he'd just hang out. And so he, I knew him from like the local PTQ scene and stuff, even though at the time, like he lived up in Davis. Mm, okay. That's, you know, as I was actually going to ask you about him because I knew that he was a Californian player and I knew that he'd actually been around the Bay Area. So that's cool. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I knew all, all those guys from back in the PTQ scene, uh, like Raptor, uh, Josh R. Layton, he who now works as a game designer himself. And at one time was like, you know, a pro tour mainstay, uh, David Ochoa, Webster, same thing. And yeah, they all basically either lived around or went to Davis. Oh, Paul Chion, of course. Right. Um, yeah. Can't, just can't forget and, Paul Chion. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you just run into these guys. And then at the time they were just like you, they were just grinding. They just were better than you at magic, but they were for the most part, they're all real cool dudes. They were all very chill, pretty humble. And so it was fun. And yeah, it's like kind of amazing to see where they all ended up after that. A hallowed moment in history, right? Before they were all just like super famous and dominant. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was like, that's the whole thing. And then after them came like another wave where it was like Jacob Wilson, Sam Pardee, Matt Nass. They, they kind of like graduated to be the next set step up. Like a lot of really solid pro tour players came from like the Bay area session. And like, it was very humbling and it was a lot, it was great for me to meet a lot of them and talk to them and get their thoughts on things. Otherwise I don't think I would be still writing about magic today. So, yeah. 
So how did the transition from like Channel Fireball, the store to Channel Fireball, the online organization take place? When did they start publishing articles on the internet? So to draw it back around, when I talked to Luis at the store and how I left Star City, they told me, oh, hey, I'm going to start making this content site and it's called Channel Fireball because the original Game Center was called Superstars Game Center. That was like the originals, like a hobby store. It was owned by uh, John Sasso and his father, Gary Sasso. And so, yeah, they wanted to expand and they wanted to go heavy into magic. And so he was like, hey, do you want to write for us? And I was kind of like, yeah, sure. Some cool, some new to do. Like, and so that's how I ended up doing that. And that's how like Channel Fireball started. They got into it. I believe it would be eight years ago now in that realm. Like, yeah. So you were just kind of like organically, like in the community and, and just like worked your way in because these were your friends basically. And it was just where you were hanging out. Yeah. I love that. You know, like I, I love stories like that. And I think like one of the things I really like about Channel Fireball is that it has always felt to me kind of like a group of friends um, or like it, it almost seems like a family. Mm -hmm. You know, we roll together, we play magic together, we team together, like we run this company together. And I, it just feels a bit unique to me. Like I feel closer, even though like, you know, like I'm a, I'm a relative stranger to that <laughs> scene. Like I just I feel closer to all of the people involved because of that. For sure. And I mean, that's the thing. You're not wrong. It's not just something that is trotted out there because it sounds better. Oh, they're all homegrown. They're all friends. Like, no, legitimately, like a lot of the like founding members of Channel Fireball, everyone either like knew each other or were friends or at least was in the area and like they were familiar in passing. It was only a handful of people that were brought like outside really until we got established like uh, like a year or two later when we really started to take off. So, okay, let's fast forward a little bit to, of course, I, I ran into you and reached out to you on the Spikes subreddit, which, you know, I mean, anyone who reads magic content online must surely eventually come up against the subreddit. It's probably one of the higher quality magic discussion subreddits that exists. When did you become involved with that? And I know that you're a mod there now. So when did you make that leap? Well, I definitely appreciate being told that the forum is uh, one of solid standing. We definitely try to keep it like that. Um, so originally I was a content producer that would post on our spikes and I wouldn't just post there for articles. Like a lot of content producers would just do that to get extra views and stuff. But I honestly like enjoyed having the discussions with players and stuff. And so I got familiar with some of the other mods and over time they asked me, Hey, you seem pretty into this and you post solid content and you try to apply the rules. You actually like follow the rules. Do you want to help mod us? And I told them no. Uh, when I was first asked, cause I was like, one of my main jobs at the time was judging. And so I was like, I already deal with angry, annoyed players enough. I don't really want that in my off time as well. But after like a year passed and the forum kept growing, they asked me again. And this time I said yes, because they just needed help. And I really wanted to help the sub out as much as I could, because I really felt like I got a lot out of it. And, you know, maybe that's not true for everyone who goes there, but I definitely got a lot out of the discussions. Like, especially 
um, when other pros would post there. And so that's something you just couldn't get anywhere else outside of like a content site. You, you couldn't get a back and forth going. So it was very cool to have that opportunity. And so if we could keep it at a high standard, I wanted those like discussions to continue with, uh, you know, newer people. So, you know, you, you played hard to get, you know, you kind of slow rolled it for a year. And then when they were vulnerable, <laughs> you just like swept in and took over. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No. The one thing I will say, the original creator, uh, Wingman, he's done an excellent job of keeping that place going. And I mean, shout outs to all the mods, uh, Yo Man and Mango and a bunch of other guys. They're all solid. They all put in the work to try and keep that place running. Uh, I'm also excited to see Yo Man finally take off with his own article column, which just goes to show you like, hey, it generates some solid people doing content that started in the forum as well, which is like something you don't usually see. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was just going to say it was like a really high, it seems like there's a high density of great magic minds modding that forum. Yeah, I've, I've been stoked to see Yoman really like, he just seems to be on an ascension right now. Like I'm, I'm hearing his name everywhere. He's on a streak and, and he's really putting out good content. And that's the big thing. Like he's getting there off his content and not just because oh he topped a gp you know x number of months or even a year ago at this point like it's because he's just putting out really good work he's putting the effort in so it's nice to see yeah that's awesome i i love it and i just love like i feel like we're at a moment in magic right now where it feels like the content creation is really diverse and i just i feel like there are a lot of different people who are carving out their own thing and I just love that, you know, it's like I, I love that you can see like Saffron Olive playing crazy janky brews and then like you can see <laughs> MPL players just like playing super sweaty standard and, and everyone in between. I, I think it's a really cool moment for magic content. I would say there has never been like a better time to be a magic creator if you wanted to get your stuff out there. If you produce solid content, you want it to be seen almost regardless of what it is. There's probably a forum for you that would be appreciative. And even more importantly, there's a way to like monetize that. So you're not just doing it because you love it. You can actually get something back out of it. Yeah, you know, like I've been podcasting for a while and I have, you know, magic is kind of my central gaming love. And I've been looking for like an entry into magic content creation for a long time. And it just seemed really well covered on the podcast front. And so, but, you know, lo and behold, Arena came along and I was like, this is awesome. Like, here's a new frontier. Here's a new opportunity to be a content creator. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm, I'm really stoked right now. So let's talk a little bit. Now that Arena is a thing, one of the reasons I reached out to you was that you had recently published an, a little article on the Spike subreddit talking about Jund Fires. Mm -hmm. This is just a really, really cool deck that I was excited to talk with you about. So why don't we pivot into like standard Mythic Championship 7 happened. That really helped, I think, to solidify a number of post-Oko archetypes in the matter. Before we get into the specific deck, I just wanted to ask you, clearly you're thinking about these, you know, the, the cat food archetype, cat oven, you're thinking about fires. So I'm just curious to hear your overview of, of what you think is good and kind of what's happening in, in the standard format right now. 
So Mythic Championship happened, and it was a lot of fun to watch. I think Standard is finally like fixed from a like overall balance standpoint. Some people will argue about like how fun it is to play or watch, but I think at least as far as deck balance and like what variety of what you can play that that part's been fixed so going from the mythic championship i would say like what happened was uh there were three decks going into it that were a big deal there was golgari food there was jun food and then there was uh, jeskai fires and those were like the three pillars going in and it was going to be seeing if any like test group had a deck that kind of could you know, break up that monotony, break up that trifecta. And I think we saw that with um, Brad Nelson and Javier and Seth Manfield. Uh, they all top aided with Simic Flash. And obviously for that tournament, it's easily the best choice. It was for that field, what they ran into, it was the best choice. It wasn't close. And I think Karsten's uh, recent article going over the matchup data from the Mythic Championship backs that up. I think they had like a 68 win percent or something between them all. That's and absurd. it was really impressive. Yeah. It's about as close to breaking as you can get. Well, and you know what was funny to me about that list is that I know it's not this simple, but to me, it almost just felt like they were like, huh, this is good. Why don't we try to run it in, in Simic Flash? And, <laughs> and sure enough, like Nissa proving that she dominates the top of the field, you know, just like showing up in so many top eighting decks and, and tournament dominating decks. And I don't know, I'm curious how you see that particular card in the meta game right now. Like what was it like as simple as just Simic Flash plus Nissa? So I think people, what people need to keep in mind is that this was built for a very small field. And so it's very different from trying to like beat arena ladder on a consistent basis in terms of just like matchups. And so obviously they went in with the understanding that aggro is probably not going to be a real thing, or if it is, it's going to be in a very low amount. And so suddenly if you go, well, if we take the early game of Simic Flash and we just throw it in the trash and play good late game cards, don't we just beat them? Because now we have a good like mid and late game and we run like 10 counters main deck. And the answer we found out was, yes, that's actually very, very good thing to do. Yeah, it's kind of telling like that the Simic Flash deck, all of those guys that weekend were running Growth Spiral. Yeah. Which is something that I wasn't really seeing on the ladder before that in the deck. And I think that's another concession to the fact that, it, you know, my priority on turn two or even turn three is just freaking getting lands on the battlefield, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah, it's very clear the deck just wants to buy some time and then drop a big haymaker. And that used to only be Nightpack Ambusher. But this one goes, well, if I have Nissa and I have... Um, six lands or five when I untap one and hold up like Quench or Aether Gust, then I not only get Nissa and a threat, but I also still have counter backup. I'm not even like tapping out just to deploy Nissa. That's the insane thing. I don't know that anyone necessarily forgot it, but I think that one of the things that the Mythic Championship proved was Nissa plus Breeding Pool plus two mana blue interactive spell is just absurd. Yeah. There are just so many spots where you cannot beat that. 
Yeah, it's very true. That's one of the benefits of of someone playing Nissa is that like they often tap out, right? Like especially on turn five, they tap out. I mean, of course, when Veil of Summer was a thing, that was kind of you know the dreaded combo. But now that that's out of the format, <laughs> you have this very small window to like try to fight Nissa before she just completely dominates the game. I mean, just time and time again, they untap the breeding pool, and you're just like, I can never win this game. Yeah, no, it, it puts you on a very, it gives you a very small window to take the initiative back from the Flash player if they've gotten Nissa resolved because otherwise, yeah, with just the mana and the fact that they're making a 3-3 every turn, uh, it can just, there's very few cards you can play that get you out of it. And obviously the fact that you have to also try and play around counter magic or maybe they just tap out the next turn and play like a Krasis for 10 or something. It's just, uh yeah. Yeah. And, and seeing that out of a Simic Flash deck is, I got to say, it's pretty sweet, you know, because I am, I'm used to that matchup being if I can resolve a couple key spells, like if I can get any kind of a board presence, I usually feel like I'm favored. If they're like disrupting you and they're quenching you and like, and, and whatever, and then all of a sudden they have the Nissa Crisis mid game, it's just like, I want to flip the table, you know? It's like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, why do you get to do this? You're, you're not playing that kind of deck. Right. It's not right. Fair. Exactly. So it does seem to be the consensus that was the best deck for that particular tournament. Coming out of that, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are like, okay, so now we're just back on the arena ladder and what do we want to play now? Like some people are probably still net decking and and playing that particular deck from the tournament, but this week back on arena and, you know, of course I was like seeing more of the, you know, like Simic Ramp elementals build and, and stuff, but also just like remembering like oh yeah the world is still full of madu knights like madu knights is a deck that's happening right now and and you know like gruel aggro and and so it's just kind of like it's funny how like over the weekend i kind of got lulled into this idea of of this very particular meta game at that tournament and then coming back it's like no like there's a, there's a bunch of stuff happening here too yeah no and that's always what the like one of the big differences you see when you compare the top end of a given tournament, especially one that's a closed field compared to a large open tournament, or in this case, just an open, constantly changing field. There's some people who their deck, they built Rakdos Knights or Mardu Knights, and they really enjoy that, you know, archetype, and they're not going to switch. They, it doesn't matter what happens overall, as long as their deck still has the card like Embercleave in it, and that card is still good. Well, they're just going to keep jamming it. And that, by the way, Embercleave, I think like sometimes quietly, sometimes loudly, just one of the best cards in the format. I thought it was so telling when I watched Huey Jensen, you know, playing Is It Flash, Embercleave. <laughs> Great. I, I guess we can play it. We can play it in Is It Flash now too. Like just like any deck that can safely produce two red mana, we can yeah. try out Embercleave, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. It's one of the key cards of the format, even if it doesn't always show up. It's something you still have to at least consider. And yeah, it, Hugh Jensen's case in Is It Flash, you, turns out you don't need to just pay two for it every time. If you pay four mana and put it on like a brazen bar, you're still talking about eight damage in the air. That's yeah. still a really impressive clock from a deck that normally involves like a lot of small ball damage, like two, three damage a turn. And maybe you like, you know, 
the biggest turn you'll get is like attack for seven because you got a bone crusher giant attack in with like a Gadwick and you tap their two blockers or something, you know? Yeah. It's not known for burst damage. Yeah, I've got to say, like, the idea of putting Embercleave on a Gadwick or just having Embercleave on any of your creatures while you have a Gadwick in play is super intoxicating oh, to me. <laughs> it's just the best. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Can we just talk about Gadwick for a moment? First of all, we live in a format now where a lot of these CCC cards are playable in, like, these two or even three color decks. Mm-hmm. that's kind of like a head explode moment for me. You know, just like seeing these decks running all of these Cavaliers, decks running Gadwick that are not mono blue. I don't know, like, what do you make of that? Does that just indicate that these cards are so powerful that we're just going to run them even though? For example, you rarely saw Chain Whirler being played in a deck that wasn't mono red because it was just that's too much man like you're asking too much of me right but obviously we're in a format where you can get away with it so like what do you think's going on there so i think the key with like the triple pip cards in general is just uh one they lean towards being played later in the game whereas chain whirler obviously got a bit worse the longer the game went on um, if you go way back, there was also Night Veil vale Spectre, which saw play in mostly monocolor decks. Um, and that was the same reason. It was just one of the best things you could play early, and it just fit their strategy. And so Gadwick's kind of the same deal, where it's like, if you can't play Hydrocrasis and you want a way to draw cards... Well, this is a like solid way to do it. Obviously, X spells are playable because otherwise, Hydra Crisis wouldn't be playable. And then it turns out ev- what everyone missed when they first started uh, looking at that card is just how powerful the tap ability was. Like, I, I admit it, I totally whiffed on like, ah, oh, yeah, great, it's good in like for limited. You can control combat, and then it's like, wait, no, you can just get a lot of fogs. You can force through damage. No, it's it's just a very good, powerful effect that's underestimated because it's rarely... It's one of those abilities that rarely comes up in competitive gameplay. You just don't see it too often. That kind of, like, tap stuff. I love it, and I love how, like, how the Cavaliers are seeing so much play right now. I think that's really... I just think that it's a testament to the fact that this kind of mid-range or even late game is cool again like this is a thing that we can do in magic and and i personally i'm just really enjoying that at the moment oh yeah well i think the cavaliers are just really cool cards in general i think they're a good like i compare them to the titan cycle as like these just very color intensive big creatures that make an impact even if you deal with them right away and then you combine them with uh fires of invention and obviously then their power level goes through the roof especially uh, the red one, um, Cavalier Flame, just because then you suddenly can sink all your mana into it the same turn you play it, which I'm sure they didn't really intend at the time they made the card, because, wow, as we've seen, it just makes Jeskai Fires a deck. Yeah, single-handedly carrying that deck forward, right? The Planeswalker version's so much worse. If you, I don't know if you've ever tried both versions, but I can tell you there's a reason everyone is on Cavaliers now instead of the older, like, attrition builds. It's a very particular meta game when Sarkin 5 is a good card. So you've been playing some Jund Fires lately, and I think that that's, it's so cool because it's just like 
to me, it kind of just feels like a mashup of two of the best decks in the format. Can you talk me through what the thought process is with that deck and why you think it might deserve a place in the matter? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the build I posted on our spikes and in my article, uh, I got earlier this week or last week, depending on when our podcast listeners hear this. But uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take a Jun food deck and what I found was like, it's very, very mana hungry once you get going. Uh, Trail of Crumbs in particular, but just in general, you want to be like casting a spell and doing something else on the same turn. Even stuff like just activating Gilded Goose whenever you can, uh, because you're able to make use of the food token so well, you can usually translate into at least half a card, if not a full card's worth of value. So that means every activation you can get is well worth the mana, but you just run into the case where you often have to choose. You either do a couple small interactions or you do a big interaction. And so to split the difference, I wanted to add Fires of Invention as like a big mana sink. And so that way I could cast my spells and then uh, still get like maximum trail of crumbs activations. And so where that ended up leading me was uh, Ben White's posted a Rakdos Fires deck that used uh, Cavalier of Flame and God Eternal Bantu um, to essentially like have the combo-y endgame. And for people who aren't familiar, God Eternal Bantu is a 5-mana, five 5-6 five, menace creature that says when the Bantu enters the battlefield, you sacrifice any number of other permanents and draw that many cards. And so with Mayhem Devil, that means for every permanent you have in play, besides Bantu itself, that's one damage and that is a really cool, really clean combo. And the best part is you don't even necessarily need to kill them uh, because, again, you're usually drawing five, six, seven, you know, cards. So even if you don't have, say, ten permanents on the board to just machine gun them with machine with Mayhem Devil, you can still draw a bunch of cards and then replay most of what you've lost and set yourself up to win the next turn. And so I took those elements together and made a Jun food deck because I think one of the weaknesses of Ben's deck was his early game is very dependent on Stormfist Crusader because uh, or the getting the oven cat engine going because otherwise there's just nothing else the deck really does. It kind of dirls around until fires comes online. And so the food naturally like wants to do that, like Gilded Goose and Trail Crumbs with the oven engine, obviously it's like this like 16 card thing you can shove in really any shell and you're guaranteed to get a certain amount of value out of it no matter what as long as you can make the mana cost work yeah and one of the things i i kind of love about that is just the low-key power of casting fires on turn three it's just like an under maybe perhaps an understated part of these fires decks running green is just that like sometimes you can power it out a turn early and what that can do for how your deck functions is quite remarkable i think yeah people underestimate what you can do with three lands uh one of the changes i made from the first iteration was to add beanstalk giant and so one of my favorite plays is to play a turn three fires and then cycle beanstalk giant for a fourth land and then on turn four i can play the fifth land for fires and then cast a cavalier or um get multiple like trail crumbs activations or something along those lines, or even just, you know, float mana, cast Bantu, 
And uh, sacrificing fires of invention after just getting the mana cheat is one of the coolest things you can do with any version of that has Bantu in it. And it's real or uh, same thing if you run Corvold, same deal. Like anytime you can sack. That was going to be my question. I'm forgetting now. Were you running Corvold in, in your version of this deck? I was running Cavalier of Flame and Cavalier of Night initially along with Bantu. Yeah. But uh, I was really stretching the mana. And so what I was doing was essentially just conceding that some percentage of the time I wouldn't be able to cast Cavalier without uh, Fires of Invention in play. Mm -hmm. And that was cool pre-Mythic Championship when you could just safely try and play slow and go over the top of everyone. Because uh, food mirrors in general are just incredibly slow, grindy matches. So you can kind of just, you know, have a dead card for a couple of turns and it's not really going to impact you. But obviously against a deck like Simic or Is It Flash, well, that can just cost you the game. That's that's a big difference. Did you end up running the Corvold or, or did you decide to cut it? Uh, my newest build, I ended up slashing Cavaliers and adding Corvolds okay. instead. Nice. Also because, yeah, the extra flying helped, yeah, for the same reason. Well, and I was also thinking, like you were saying with Bontu, like having another way to sack the fires and draw a card, I just think is... It's so great. Like that's it's just such a fantastic interaction to be like, I'm gonna get ten plus mana worth of value out of this thing and then draw a card from it and then spend more mana in the same turn. I mean, that's just disgusting, right? Oh yeah. No, I think it was definitely underexplored in general, mostly because Oko like made thinking about decks not involving oko just kind of a waste of time for so long <laughs> yeah pretty narrowing effect on the meta game overall <laughs> how have you been feeling playing this deck on the ladder how has it been matching up against what you're seeing in the field it's not bad it's it definitely relied a little more on surprise factor than i kind of anticipated but it's one of those things where i think what i and I said this in the post where I was just like, I think the concept is good. I'm not sure if my execution of the concept is necessarily up to the task. And that's kind of where I am. I've been splashing around in like mid diamond right now. And this like easily got me through platinum in a small number of matches relatively. But now I'm starting to run into the, a lot of the mythic championship builds and it's starting to really like the flaws and the plans are starting to pop up so i think where i'm going to end up eventually assuming this deck is better than a normal version of jun food is it's essentially going to be like a jun food deck that uses fires as like a mana sink and then has the ability to delete it and kill with like god trump onto and that's like so it's gonna not look as nearly as greedy as i originally had drawn it up <laughs> mm, right Right, so you sacrifice some of that like meme-worthy top end to just have a, a more consistent plan. Right, like I think if you take like Canister's Jun deck that won the Mythic Championship, and and you just do that and like add three fires of invention to it, I think you could just play that as is, and you would probably get some big benefit from it. Just because again, the deck is so mana hungry, even just normal Jun food. It makes a huge difference. And also just the ability to do like casualties of war and another spell in the same turn. It's very rare decks can beat things like that. 
Yeah, and I that that was definitely a light bulb moment for me in reading your article. Was I was just thinking like those decks they don't really cast spells on the opponent's turn anyway, and they don't tend to resolve more than two spells on their own turn anyway because they are they're just like spending so much time like tapping mana for trail of crumbs and or you know hard sacking food when they need to and stuff like that and so yeah that was for me I was like this is one of the decks that I feel gets the most or, or has the least drawback from the statute of limitations on the fires yeah exactly you're you're really just using it as a big mana sink and you are not relying on it you have a perfectly functional deck without it yeah I love it. I love it. So what do you think in terms of the potential variations on the fire deck? What do you think is the most powerful right now? Um, I think Jun Fires is probably... It's either Jund or Rakdos that are like the most powerful versions. Rakdos has both the Cavalier Flame, just haste a bunch of creatures, some of which have Menace and just, you know, attack your opponent to death. Has the Bond to kill. It also just is good at drawing a bunch of cards and killing opponents just through Midnight Reaper, Crusader, Bantu. Just it's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Do you think that Jeskai Fires is currently not a great choice? So my main issue is like, it's probably the worst version of Fires against uh, the Flash decks. Whereas I think Jun Food and by extension, like Jun Fires is good against the Flash decks because they can't really deal with Mayhem Devil, and it just gives you more cheap... Like, if you've ever resolved a Trail of Crumbs against a Flash player, like, they're on the draw and you just slam that on turn two, they have to be so aggressive to have a chance to, like, get back into the game, or you'll just eventually bury them. You know, it's so funny because I just... When I look at the decks that I've been playing in this meta, they are just all... They all run these, like, cheap value cards that just bury the flash decks right like Uh i've been playing various permutations of the adventures deck and i just remember the moment when it clicked for me i was like i can cast innkeeper on turn three (laughs) and they can't quench it and they can just never win from here oh yeah or if i if i slam a lucky clover on turn two you know when you know and it's just like it's i feel like the game's over already you know (laughs) right it's like the classic flaw of all flash decks which is some games you will be on the draw and those games are awful if your opponent just plays (laughs) some kind of card advantage tool early because ultimately you are a one-for-one deck and you can try and race but if they do their plan and you do yours they're gonna win especially with the adventures deck i feel like because the whole point of of any of those adventures decks is to at some point flood the board with creatures or just get an incredible amount of creature value and they tend to play pretty thick creatures too and that's just something that like the combination of card advantage and threatening creatures is just really hairy for the flash deck to deal with yeah well you said you were playing the clover version right so i imagine your curve's already very low and so they just have a lot to work from just because you're going to have the mana advantage on them the whole game. And like you said, you can even make them, uh, they can't really use quench effectively unless they're on the play and they, you cast them on turn two. And it, honestly, if you've cast Innkeeper on turn one, it doesn't matter anyway. So yeah, they, they are just on the back foot right away. 
Yeah, I, I've got to say, you know, I don't necessarily think that Team of Clover is like a really tier one deck, but I will say that there are certain matchups like that that I just feel like it it, it just looks godlike, you know? <laughs> when, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it really just has the unique tools to, to deal with that deck. I mean, it's like when you get a Clover down on turn two, and then, you know, you, you fay of wishes for like Chandra six or something like that. I mean, it's like, uh, you can just see the person like crying into their, <laughs> into that beverage on the other side. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's no, great. it's just like uh, they, they see the wish and they're like, Oh, you get multiple of those. And, uh, so uh, I can't really do anything about it. And you have right. your entire sideboard. And like you said, Oh yeah, there's uncounterable spells too. And so I can't stop that either. And it's just. Yeah, you, you just get end up getting buried and you're just like, wow, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Which I you know, I like it though, because if a deck like if a deck like Flash is too good or is just able to play around too many things, then I think you end up with a pretty miserable format. So I'm actually that's I, I think that, that the various versions of the Flash deck to me feel like a real triumph of this standard format in that they've always felt strong. They've always felt like they could get there. They've always rewarded skilled play, but mm -hmm. they've never felt just like totally miserable or over the top dominant. Oh yeah. No, as someone who really enjoyed playing the mono blue obsession deck when that was like a tier one choice, oh, I God. much rather deal with this iteration. Oh, if I'm going to like be an opponent side of things, then deal with that deck where it just felt like, there were certain starts that you could never beat and it didn't matter what you did. And it was just, yeah, it's a helpless feeling and it sucks. Yeah. I, the, it's a particular kind of sorrow in magic where you're on the play and your opponent plays their one drop and you look at your hand and you're like, I'm already dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah no. It's like, <laughs> I can, uh, wow, I can just never win this game ever. And, and you can't concede either because there's always, always that chance, that faint hope you have where it's like, no, one of these will get through, right? It's like the third, fourth <laughs> exactly. spell. And it's just like, and then it dawns. It's like, no, I never, the game was no. over. Just like you said, turn one, <laughs> never had a chance. Well, whatever. Yeah, somehow like one one fly a Voltron is just a viable strategy. You know, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've gotten to the point in the show where you know we've discussed some standard. We've got to hear about some of the stuff that you've been brewing lately. I'm just curious if there's anything top of your mind happening in Magic at the moment, or if it's anything you're excited about, or any other you know new formats like Pioneer or Historic that you've been thinking about. What else are you jazzed on at the moment in Magic? I would love historic if it was a real thing. I'm I just have no interest in a standard format that is like I don't know, 10 sets deep or whatever it is currently. I mean, wake me up when it's a little bigger. Um Yeah. Meanwhile, on the flip side, you have Pioneer, which is easily for me the most exciting announcement they've had in like years for Magic as far as that kind of stuff goes. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, have you been playing much Pioneer? Yes. Actually, the one downside about doing the podcast here with you tonight is that I uh, miss my Pioneer night at the game shop. But, uh, you know, it it'll be there next week. One thing I've noticed is it's very popular right now. So I'm not worried about, oh, God, it might be dead in a month. No, no, I'm I'm very confident Pioneer's here to stay. 
Well, yeah, thanks for being an old maid with me tonight and, uh, you know, just having a having a fireside chat instead of your usual Pioneer. I appreciate that. What are you playing in Pioneer? What are you trying out? So once they banned my precious, precious Field of the Deads and I can no longer play Splendid Reclamation with good conscience, I now have to play other decks that uh, do degenerate horrible things to people. But uh, not Nexus of Fate. They should ban Nexus of Fate. I hate that deck. I hope they <laughs> it never. Ha- I hope it's never good. Um, but uh, I'm playing uh, Simic and Soul right now, and so I was playing Is It in Soul originally, and then I switched over to Oko's, and I might even try a three color build at some point. But um, just a big fan of how well Heart of Karen and Oko play with one another. Oh man, that really is a disgusting combo. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that because Heart of Karen and and I mean both of the choppers, right? <laughs> <laughs> were like some of my favorite cards coming into Pioneer and I got to admit I'm pretty bummed with the copter ban. I see why they did it, but I kind of feel like it died for mono black sins and I was just really hoping to get at least like another couple of months to play with it in Pioneer. I mean, that that's, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. It's one of those things where I can look at it objectively and go, yeah, I mean, it's not great for a card to be in like every single aggro deck and most of the mid-range decks and be like, you know, 40% of the field. But on the flip side, like Smuggler's Copter inherently promotes like fairer magic. You have to play like small creatures to get value out of it, really. It's just a 3 3 that attacks. And yes, it's a good looter, but it's still just a, f- at its core, it's just a 3 3 flyer. And it's, you know, nothing super out of whack with the rest of the format. Totally. Yeah, that was my thought too. And I think part of, part of my heartbreak was just as ridiculous as that card is, I've really wanted it to have a home. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want for that to be a Smuggler's Copter format, and I really thought Pioneer was going to be Smuggler's Copter's time to shine. And so, what an unfortunate card, man. Like, can you imagine (laughs) being Smuggler's Copter? You're like, all right, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm to... Oh, I'm banned. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Pioneer's here. Oh, I'm banned, you know? Yeah. It's just like, it's so heartbreaking. No, it's it's a card I, like, had a lot of fun playing with, and it is a little sad to see it go. I mean, I hope... One day they would eventually consider taking it off just to see how it plays when more cards are introduced. Hopefully yeah. when like better removal is in the format. Because really that's why Smuggler's Copter had to get booted from their perspective, I imagine. It's just like that's why Mono Black Agro was so good. It had Fatal Push and Fatal Push cleanly yeah. answered Copter and Elves and everything. So Right. No, I mean, it, it's a really good point, yeah. And so, yeah, maybe it'll get, like, the Stoneforge treatment, right? That would make me happy in the future. <laughs> but but in the meantime, you know, I, and I don't know if this happened for you, but I feel like it was so many people who were playing with Copter were just like, all right, Heart of Karen, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely see, like, people just seeing, well, Copter was good, and what did we play after Copter? Well, we played Heart of Karen. And Heart of Cairn's still very good. It's still a very powerful card. And now we have this, well, not just Oko, but even stuff like the Royal Signs, where it's like you can play these Planeswalkers with very high starting loyalty. And so that that's like Heart of Cairn's best friend. I think that was my first Pioneer Brew idea, was I was like, how could we put the Royal Scions and Heart of Cairn into a deck? 
because I was like, that's got to be good, right? Swinging for like six first strike trample in the air on turn three has got to be good. Oh, go a step further. Throw in like Teamer Battle Rage too. Come on, man. Let's go. Uh, I mean, hey, you know, just live the dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about the Royal Scions for a little bit? I feel like this is a card that I feel like it's so close to being amazing. And <laughs> I have tried the Royal Scions in Standard. I have I ever tried the Royal Scions in Standard? Like I've made Grixis brews, I've made Izzet brews, I've made Tima brews. I just I so badly want to break that card, or at least to just find the deck that it's it lives in. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if we've gotten there. Like, do you have any thoughts about that? So I've also played the Royal Signs in a number of decks because I thought it was a very very strong card. Um, and the main issue I came up with in standard, at least, was that it, it's one of those cards that not only was overshadowed by Oko, but also it's like overshadowed by somewhat of throne in general. Like it's a very good, uh, three drop that does not affect the board and kind of helps set you up your future turns. And right now, the second ability on there is great for aggro decks, which don't exist really. Like at least in blue red, you have is it flash, but that's a more that's a slower, more uh, what's the word like stable, consistent. You know what I mean? It's like it wants to deal damage, like a consistent amount of damage over a couple of turns. It doesn't really want to just like try beating you down really quick and kill you on turn five, and so it's hard to justify. And then you also have stuff like Questing Beast, which seems to just extra punish like cards like Royal Scions, where it, it doesn't really interact with the uh, card in any useful way, except you can try and loot and find other stuff. But it's it's a super powerful Planeswalker that I think in a lot of formats would be among the best. And in this particular format, it's just doesn't really have a home at current. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, in any format where you have a lot of cheap and maybe like value generating creatures like getting in for damage, I think the Royal Scions could be a potentially maybe like a mirror breaker or just something to kind of push you over the edge. Um, like you said, kind of keep your card advantage going. But you're right, it does just feel a little small ball in standard right now. Uh, it's, I mean, people are just doing such disgusting things. Yeah. Um, you know, Pioneer might actually end up being a better home for it. Like, obviously, it's going to have a long lifespan standard, so I wouldn't be shocked to see it there. But in Pioneer, you can put it in stuff like Is It Insole or Jeskai Vehicles and kind of get value out of it there. Or even, um, whatchamacallit, if there's another kind of twin esque deck where it's primarily blue and red and you can afford to like take a turn off and make it up some way with the other cards in your deck. Like looting every turn and threatening an ultimate is still really strong with Royal Sons. Yeah, that's true. And the, the ultimate, I think, is kind of underestimated a little bit. I've definitely had matches where my opponent had one, and it comes down and you're like, yeah, 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 that cute Planeswalker, I don't really need to worry about that. And all of a sudden you're like getting domed for seven and your opponent has a full hand and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> what, yeah. what what has happened to me here? Oh, yeah. I will say if the mana was better, the Grazer, uh, Grazer is the greatest friend that card has because 
not only does it provide you let you play it on turn two with when you get the mana right, but it just provides an early blocker so you can threaten the ultimate pretty quickly. And at that point, your opponent is kind of forced to throw resources at it just to make sure it doesn't ult. And so you can get a lot out of that. That's kind of dirty. Besides which, has Grazer ever looked more aggressive? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. No, I so people forget that that card can attack. Yeah, no, uh, Hoogland, uh, Jeff Hoogland, he made a rug deck when once upon a time in Oko were still legal, and all it wanted to do was turn to a planeswalker. And in that deck, Royal Signs actually performed pretty solidly, cause, uh, you also got to do things like turn two signs, turn three questing beast, and then you had a mm. death touch, wow. uh, trampling attacker, and it was like, wow. wow. That's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always thought as well, Brazen Borrower and the Royal Scions to me seem like a pretty like, solid little duo there. Like besties, yeah. I mean, it, it would make a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's one of those things too where it's like you look at the guys at Flash Decks and you're, you you got to ask yourself, it's like, would like two Royal Scions be wrong in this deck? You know, I honestly don't <laughs> know. I just haven't played it enough, so. I'm so with you. I'm so with you. And I, I think it's a testament to how powerful the cards are in the format right now that looking at the royal scions is just seems like too much of an investment right it's like <laughs> uh this three cost card uh just like i don't know if this six loyalty the turn it comes down planeswalker is going to be good enough right you're right yeah it's just like what what kind of a world do we live in where that's the case uh a very very like high powered bad mana weird format where like yeah, this standard is, <laughs> I played a lot of standard over the time I've been playing Magic, and this is one of the, like, weirdest formats, like, and this is after multiple rounds of Banes. It's still just one of the, like, more high-powered and weird formats, like, in how it's positioned itself. Yeah, absolutely, which, in to some degree, I'm kind of happy about, because, when was the last time you could just consistently play Battle Cruiser Magic in Standard? Like, I, I just feel like for so long it's been dominated by these red black aggro decks. And I was just thinking about your Jund Fires deck. So, so you're running Trail of Crumbs, which is like a quote unquote do nothing. And you're running. Uh, Witch's Oven, and you're running Fires of Invention, and it's just, you go down the list, and I almost feel like Standard at the moment is how greedy and and how many random do-nothing engine cards can I cram into my deck and somehow just dominate my opponent with. Right, I mean, if you don't have a do-nothing engine, are you even playing Standard? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I just, I love that. It's like I love that. I feel like in previous formats you'd be looking at your edge wall innkeeper and you'd be like, "Oh, I don't know if I can fit this guy into my deck." You're like, "Oh, how about the clover?" I just feel like in in a previous format you would have been like, "Yeah, clover's cute. I don't know. I just feel like in some games I'm going to draw two of them and die." And in this format it's like, "Bring it on. I'm I'm waiting <laughs> for the third clover off the top." I mean, it's just ridiculous. The number of times I've been like super sad to have like two witches ovens in play doing nothing and then I'll just randomly draw a cat and suddenly everything my deck is fully functional after like 
just looking like a bad draft deck for like multiple turns is just like ah <laughs> oh, it's amazing yeah it's gangbusters i know i i love that too yeah who would have thought looking at the set spoiler that this random little uncommon draft value engine was just going to end up being at the top of the format i mean it's pretty amazing it, it's kind of shocking how good the cat oven plus trail crumbs thing ended up being and how long we like everyone figured out cat oven relatively quickly but it took what a month and a half for trail crumbs to see serious play at all like it's kind of amazing to see how like people were trying all sorts of like the food cards and that one just got overlooked for so long i totally agree that really was an innovation and i think it's in my opinion it's one of the things that saved that last mythic championship was having that in the format i mean and i'm talking about just in terms of like innovation and interest and excitement because i think it really proved that the food mechanic could be good outside of just oko oh yeah oh god food mechanics busted it, it is it is and it's so funny because I remember looking at the L. Jane spoiler and thinking like, uh, well, food is great, but it's never going to be as cool as clues. Cause, All right, I mean, yeah. You know, it's like investigate is just one of my all-time favorite mechanics. I mean, to give you an idea of how into it I am, I've been building uh, an investigate commander deck, which in in no way, shape, or form is ever going to be a good or competitive deck. But I just love putting clues onto the battlefield. It's like one of my favorite things to do in Magic. And so I remember looking at Jane and thinking, yeah, well, that's cute, but it's it's never going to be as good as clues. And holy crap, <laughs> I I stand corrected. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just weird. Yeah, it's... I mean, food in general is just like, I thought it was like fixed clues, and then it turned out, no, it's just, it's clues 2.0, except they made... All the other cards, like they made the clues weaker, but they made all the cards using it way, way better. Exactly. Yeah. And I I think you're right. It's like, that's probably why we're not going to see food cards outside of Oko or maybe Gilded Goose seeing play in, in other formats. Whereas, you know, like Tireless Tracker is a mainstay. Um, although I, I guess when I really think about it, clues aren't really, is there any other clue card apart from the tracker that, that sees much play these days? not that comes to mind like thraben inspector was there for a while but i think it kind of fell off it's like it's so really yeah it's just tireless tracker and what pioneer now like i don't even really see it in modern anymore the format's too powerful for it which is its own like can of beans yeah yeah totally uh thraben inspector though i'm I'm stoked Thraven Inspector's back for a, a second act in Pioneer. I'm I'm not saying it's good, but I have been playing it. So, I mean, I'm, I'd love for Thraven Inspector. What are you playing in Pioneer anyway? So, okay, yeah. I was excited about the, uh, let's see, was it Martin? I want to say it was Martin Mueller made the, the Azorius Tempo deck. That style of deck was one of my favorite decks. Back, you know, the, the blue-white flash back when that was in standard. So, yeah, so I, I built that deck and then Copter got banned, which is a shame. And so I've been kind of looking at that deck and trying to retool. And I've actually been trying out the Heart of Kirin, throwing in a couple of other three-power creatures like Thalia, Heretic, Cathar, um, just to try to increase the consistency a little bit. 
my initial results have not been good. I I don't <laughs> think that that's actually a viable deck. But I think I, I as a result, it's actually one of the reasons why I was excited to talk with you about Jeskai in Pioneer because I might actually be trying more of like a, a Scions friendly brew built around Hearts of Kirin. Okay. So like a Jeskai vehicles kind of thing. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, and it boy, it's tough. It's tough because every time I play Pioneer, I feel like the question I have to ask myself is why am I not playing black? <laughs> I mean, okay, I know why I don't play green in Pioneer. There's just this, you know, there's this limited set of things that I've decided I'm not really interested in doing right now, but I feel like this is the question that every Pioneer player has to ask themselves is why am I not playing black? I mean, because you you don't like playing black and Pioneer's still kind of a fun casual competitive format. <laughs> and there you go, you know, and, and so hence I play decks, you know, with both blue and white in them. But <laughs> I mean, look, like you want a you want a real answer. It's just because like there is no good reason to not just like start base black because the cards Thoughtseize and Fatal Push exist and they're just the best interactive cards in the in the format. So if you're not doing exactly. something super proactive, like, I don't know, playing a bunch of man elves, which has been like green stick this entire, like, ever since Pioneer was announced, there's like, oh, wow, we can just put all our man elves in a deck and, you know, we'll, we'll just play big stuff and that's fine. But yeah, otherwise it's like, well, if you play red, you can have, you know, the shock that costs $5 or you could play black and get Fatal Push and Thoughtseize. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is just, it's so devastating. I'm trying to think of a matchup in which Thoughtseize is not good. Um, I mean, you know, maybe maybe in the most aggro of matchups or something like that. But I mean, it's just, oh, that card. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason where it's like, people are like, yeah, they're going to reprint Theros, so then they get the reprint in circulation. I'm just thinking like, were you around when like mono black control was a deck? It was not fun getting <laughs> thoughts used every game. It really wasn't. And that's just it. That's how I feel playing Pioneer at the moment is I feel like there are a few knives. I mean, there are a few guns in a room full of knives is, is kind of how Pioneer feels to me at the moment, which isn't an indictment of the format. I mean, I love Pioneer and it's, it's definitely probably the format I'm most excited about at the moment, but. Yeah. Yeah, I do I do feel like there are a few kinks to work out there because I think that's that's why Jeskai interests me is that I feel like if you take a serious look at your deck and it doesn't have black or green in it, it, it I just feel like it's kind of like what are you doing at the moment? Yeah, I mean that's fair. I mean, the upside about going that kind of thing is like you're not starting base color though, right? You're starting base artifact and then so that kind of helps justify it because you you can kind of like get the best of the other colors for what you're trying to do. Whereas if you go heavy best black cards, you really kind of got to go super deep into black because you need a certain number of, uh, untapped black sources on turn one or your, or your, uh, cards get significantly worse. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's a really good point. And it does highlight some of the invisible constraints of running cards like that. Maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe what we're seeing is the opposite of my assertion, but I feel like I'm seeing such a strong amount of groupthink, bandwagon thinking happening in Magic at the moment, where I feel like 
someone will develop a really good deck in a format like Pioneer, and I feel like a nanosecond later, people are like, oh, they broke it, the format's solved, we're done here. And I mean, clearly, that's not exactly what's happening. Like, there are all kinds of people trotting out their homebrews and trying cool stuff. And, and so I think that's one of the things that makes the format so satisfying right now for the average player. But do you think that magic is particularly group thinky at the moment? Or is it just that there are so many people playing magic right now that formats are just solved very quickly? A little bit A, a little bit of B. I think it, it definitely is both. Um, you can see at like the Mythic Championships and stuff that small testing groups can definitely still do innovations not found by the majority and still make a really big impact. I think playing and designing and tweaking to win your single tournament weekend, that's totally still viable. I think if your plan is to try and make a new deck and just like break the format for an extended period of time, that's basically dead in the water because people will immediately latch on to whatever it is if it's any good and iterate on it and publicize it and make their own versions and do whatever. And it will quickly like spiral out of hand if it's any good. Or if it's not good, it will also just be, you'll know. You'll know by like the week's end if it catches, because you'll see this on um, Magic Online. You used to see it a lot more, but where a deck will catch fire and I guess it counts for arena too. Like you'll see a deck like absolutely dominate the queue for two or three days. And then by the weekend, you'll be like, wait, I, I like changed cards in my sideboard and stuff to deal with this. And now I'm just never see this deck again. And I think that happens a lot more often now than uh, we're used to seeing. Yeah, I definitely hear you. And I think one of the blessings and the curses of magic being in such a boom right now is that you just have so many minds working on things it's like we we have the we we kind of have our own version of the supercomputer cranking on the game and it's just that humans happen to be the peons instead of the cpu cycles doing it but it seems like we've reached some kind of critical mass of people playing i wonder as well like there are more people streaming, and streaming really encourages playing for eight hours straight. And I just feel like you're just seeing so many people sit at their computers for like these long spans of time and just crank away. And so I think that that's something that just never used to happen in Magic before. It was probably pretty difficult to just play eight hours of a deck against a diverse field and really put it through its paces whereas i think now you could just you could have a, a session right like let's say you're in mythic on arena and you're playing in standard and you pick a deck that you want to try out and if you just do your eight hour stream and you play that deck all day you're gonna really you're gonna have a handle on the format and on how that deck feels in the format by the end of that day yeah i there definitely is a huge difference i i could tell you for a fact that way back in the day like probably the best testing you could get was uh, if you could sit down and get like three or four people to commit to actual testing uh, certain decks against one another that, you know, in person where you could go through it, that was the best way to get testing. Nowadays, I think just sitting down and grinding out a bunch of games is like just as helpful unless everyone is 
very uh, in tune with like what you're trying to figure out and like what you're actually testing for. Like obviously you see that in like pro groups or it's like small bunches will test with each other and they can all give like high level feedback to one another. But you know, if you're just testing with your mates, then maybe that's not the case. Maybe you're the most into it and they're not. And then the feedback you get may not necessarily be helpful. So just testing on your own has often been just as helpful as testing a group where like 10 years ago, that wasn't really the case. You just couldn't get good testing unless you were in a group. Yeah, like, for example, I overheard somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it true that Canister just did a lot of his testing for the MC just by himself? Uh, Yeah, as far as I know, he, he spent the majority of his time just battling and grinding and theory crafting on his own. Yeah, which I just think is a testament. He's like, nah, pro team, it's just me and my Twitch chat figuring this format out. And then he just goes on to win it. Yeah, no, I mean... I think that says something, right? Yeah, it, the, the story behind Canister is actually pretty cool. And uh, he's definitely a worthy champ. And I think it goes to showcase like how many more games and how quickly you can like cycle through iterations of your deck on MTG Arena compared to anything we've had before. You just can't get faster games compared to like any other thing, at least that I'm aware of. I agree. And and so in the face of all the people trash talking the Arena platform, you know, I just have to say I've been playing more Magic for cheaper than at any other point in my life. And, and for that alone, I'm super stoked about Arena. I mean, people just hate, like, new things because they're just not used to them. Or, I mean, some people have, like, legitimate complaints about Arena, but as, like, a program, like, it it, it always makes me want to, like, go into grumpy old mammo whenever I see people, like, talk about how great Magic Online is. I'm like, no, Magic Online's been trash for, since version, like, 3. And oh even version gosh. 3 wasn't very good. And it's just, like, I don't know when Spreadsheet Simulator got, like, you know, when the opinion rolled around on that, like people used to just be in agreement. Yeah, Magic Online sucks. And now it's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, no, it's not fine. And <laughs> and finally, like, I know that because of Pioneer being so popular, people are talking about the server lag and some of the other issues that like weren't problems earlier. I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This Magic Online's never been good. Let's not lie to ourselves and pretend it's ever been good. MTG Arena and Chandelar are the only two good digital offerings Wizards has ever put out, in my opinion, anyway. Oh, I'm so with you. I mean, here's an indictment. I was playing Magic Online earlier this year. Uh, I was going back to it for draft, which is something that will typically happen to me. Like a new set will come out on Arena and I'll, you know, I'll play a bunch of standard, I'll play a few drafts and then I'll I'll just be like, "Nah, nah, it's it's time for <laughs> nah. real drafts again." <laughs> yeah. And I had this moment when I I had Magic Online up and I was playing it and it was lagging out and it was performing really badly and I was thinking to myself is this client really performing worse than my arena client right now? And that for me, that was just like, that was like the flip the table moment. I was just like, this, <laughs> this sucks. Right. I feel like I'm playing a piece of software that was developed in the 90s that is like still doesn't run well on my computer. Yeah, that, that is not an uncommon uh, <laughs> feeling to have. It's certainly not. And I mean that, but what you just said, it's like, 
The only reason people still play on Magic Online is because there are things accessible on there you can't get on Arena. Otherwise, I think people would be more than happy to just switch over completely to Arena. Yeah. You know what's funny, though? And this makes me feel a little gaslit, perhaps, or like, what is it, Stockholm Syndrome? Is I do have these moments of feeling nostalgic for Magic Online or just or feeling like, don't take this away from me, you know? And so, like, I, I can totally understand how especially some of the older players might get, like, a little attached to it or a little defensive around it. There are things that, I mean, especially when Arena had a, I guess it was like toward the end of beta where it was getting clunkier and slower every update and you were like man magic online it feels nice and I think that kind of fooled some people and now that magic on arena has kind of gotten at least for me I've noticed the updates have made the like hitching go away I just don't have that problem anymore and the memory leak it just I have to leave the arena program open for like hours now to really have an effect. And I don't have like super great hardware or anything. So I figure for the majority of people, it's mostly fixed. Whereas magic online, it still feels like every two, three rounds, you probably want to just reset your client. That reminds me of, uh, I play, uh, a MOBA called uh, heroes of the storm and it's by blizzard. And it's based on the old starcraft two engine. And so oh, there are a lot nice. of re- really weird quirks with it. And one thing that like really helps with performance on certain uh, rigs, you set the sound channels to 32 bit. And I, no joke, for some reason, it like gives me like stable above 60 FPS. Whereas if I have it any higher, it'll just randomly chug all the time. And I don't know why it does it or what it absolutely has to do with the frame rate, the number of sound channels, but it does. And it's just weird. Wow. Weird. This is like in the pre-Unity world, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> look at Hearthstone and how much better that is. Well, Hearthstone has its own problems, but I mean, by comparison, it's just oh, like, yeah. oh, it's a dream oh, come yeah. true unless you play on mobile. What a novelty. A multi-million dollar software development company can make a good game. (laughs) It's it's really, you know, who would have thought? Who would have guessed? Where's my magic auto chess, man? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, uh, you know, the conversation's veering over to Hearthstone, which I think means it's probably time to end this episode. It's been so great having you on, Josh. And I just wanted to close this out. I mean, first of all, thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and, and just hacking it up with someone who just has such a comprehensive history with the game. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been quite a fun little chat we've had. So I, I've enjoyed it. Certainly yeah. worth missing one night of Pioneer for, so I'm excited. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm glad that we cleared that bar. So before we leave, where can people find you on the internet? I usually post articles every week or two on channelfireball.com. Awesome. Do you have a Twitter following? Anything like that? No, I've managed to like stay far away from most social media. One of the biggest regrets I have is when I used to be big on Facebook, I used to accept all these blind friend invites from magic players and uh i quickly rectified that so no i don't i don't really have much of a social media presence if you go to the r spikes discord i am a moderator there and i'm pretty uh chatty fantastic keeping it simple you know i i like that i like that just focusing on the magic not focusing on the flame storm that is Twitter or other magic social media, probably for the best. 
Yeah, it gets kind of uh, drama-y, and uh, it's just not my cup of tea. I'm I'm a little too old to want to deal with that anymore. <laughs> Get off my lawn! Uh, I love it. All right, well, thank you so much, Josh. Take it easy, my man. Yeah, no problem. Have a wonderful evening. And thank you again at home for listening. It's been a pleasure bringing you this show, and I look forward to providing you more magic content on a weekly basis. Like I said at the top of the show, feel free to join the Discord if you're looking to generate more magic community. Catch you next week. Beep.